This is an ABC podcast. Diego Garijo is a man who goes by many names. When he's fighting in the ring, he's called Dos Pistolas, which means two guns in Spanish. Diego, or Dos Pistolas, had a pretty good record as a professional mixed martial arts fighter. Seven wins, zero draws, and only one loss to his name. Before Dos Pistolas, his nickname was El Nino, the boy. The boy who was smuggled across the Mexico-US border in the back of a pickup truck. But more recently, though, Diego has added another name to his list of personas, Lola Pistola. Hello, Diego. Buenos dias or buenas noches to you wherever you are in California. Hello. Hey, how's it going? How's everybody out there doing? Oh, we're just fine. Like, uh, like I said, you were born in Mexico, Diego. Which part of Mexico are we talking about? And what do you remember of that? What pictures do you have in your head of your early life in Mexico? Well, I was born in Leon, Guanajuato, Mexico, which is a small town that's very famous for a museum of, of its mummies. Um, I was only there for a short while, though, and then I was brought to another more larger, more well-known part of Mexico called Guadalajara in Jalisco. That's a very metropolitan town. And I remember quite pretty good you know, everything. You know, I remember the city, the people, the the food, everything. I love Mexico and I try to go back as often as possible. You mentioned the Guanajuato, is that how you say it? Isn't, is that where Diego Rivera, the great Mexican artist, was born? Uh-huh, touche. Yes, correct, my friend. It's uh, Yes, both Diego and I were born in Leon, Guanajuato. And that makes two famous painters. I hope to be as famous as him one day. But <laughs> how much of an influence was he when you were a kid? Well, you know, I love his work, and he was married to Frida Kahlo, and I love her work as well. But they did have an influence on me as a child because they were some of the most recognizable Mexican artists, and I grew up knowing that I was going to be an artist my entire youth. You know, that was my main goal. When I got into high school, I, I was certain that I was going to go to art college. And then I got re derailed and, you know, went through a lot of other steps in life. But, you know, finally ended up here as a full-time artist living my life. Who was at home with you when you were a kid? Well, mostly my mother. Um, my mother did separate from my father at a very early age. And she did work. And then uh, my father owned some shoe factories. He had moved from Spain to Mexico as a young man. And he did very well for himself. There's a, a big shoe store chain that is known through all of Mexico. It's so popular. And so um, he saved up his money working for them. And then eventually he parted ways and just went about his own shoe industry business. So did that mean with your mum out at work, were you home alone a lot as a kid? Yeah, definitely home alone a lot as a child. I drew a lot since I was a small child. Uh, I had a very overactive imagination. I had a lot of imaginary friends and um, didn't always click well with other children. And sometimes, you know, I was uh, bullied a lot also as a child. Yeah, I, I, I spent a lot of time in front of the TV and drawing. Tell me what happened on the day when you were home alone and a missionary came around to your house and knocked on the door. Oh, yeah, that was quite the day that made a, an impression on my whole life, I believe. But yeah, so my mother used to uh, work out of the home a lot and uh, she would leave me alone, you know, like at a very early age, you know, not the best, most responsible parent. She did what she could. 
And uh, at the time, somebody knocked on the door and I was like, who is it? And they were like, oh, I'm going door to door selling biblical placemats. Does your mom take you to church? And I was like, oh, my mom's not here. And like, I mean, luckily, it didn't get any worse than that. But they were like, oh, let me talk to you about the gospel. And then they slipped a, a placemat under the door and they were like, uh, do you know about the apocalypse? And I was a small child and I just started listening to everything he had to say and when you're a child like that and your mind is so young and impressionable it's like a sponge and it just soaked everything up and to this day i'll never know if i'm so programmed to gravitate towards extremes because it's something in my genetics or the way i was raised but it did give me a very um askew view of like the end of the world at a very early age and i think it just I hate the word adrenaline junkie, but I think it caused me to become very like gravitated towards extremes. And I just like soaked everything he was saying. And then when I was a small child, like if I was watching the news and there was like an earthquake or some kind of storm, I'd be like, Oh my God, it's the end of the world. You know, just like throw myself into a, you know, frenzy and like throw, throw a tantrum at the mall or anywhere I was at, you know? So it was made for a very awkward kid that's a really strange way to hear about the apocalypse is to have a biblical placemat slipped under the door and then have a missionary tell you about the end of the world through a closed door do you still have the pictures of what those end times were supposed to look like in your head well when i came to the united states you know i was introduced to cable television and all of a sudden i had these channels and access to everything and all this information and i do believe that when i came to the united states it must have been like around summer vacation time because I remember not going to school for months and I was just like absorbing American culture on the television. And you have, you know, even back then they had like CNN and channels that were all news all the time. And then you, when you're watching the news as a child, you notice that we all know that what makes headlines is negative stuff. You hardly ever see positive stuff. And if you're watching it as a child and not knowing like, Hey, you know, this is just the worst of what they're putting out there it really like drills into your skull and you're like, Oh my God, these are the end of days. You know, they're like, look, everything's going bad. Or if there's a war, all oh, of this is it. Also at that time in LA, there happened to be a lot of earthquakes and those made a huge impression on me too. So I, I think as a very small child, I just had this very much like end of the world mentality, like live every day to its fullest. Um, I'm like, pretty much uh, a risk taker. So at the end of the news broadcast, after all the, the earthquakes and the bad news and the riots, they're just as likely to show a chimp on a surfboard and it probably all looks like part of the same thing or part of the same <laughs> apocalypse, doesn't it, Diego? Yeah, pretty much. I guess you could say that for sure. <laughs> so you mentioned you went to Guadalajara and then you moved somewhere closer to the US border in Baja, California. What prompted that move? Uh, well, my mom and um, my dad met in the nightlife. She was a, a prostitute. She was a, a teenage runaway. Um, her parents came from money and they, they came from a political background. But my mom just like is a natural rebel. She always rebelled against everything, kind of took off, uh, met my dad and kind of settled down for a little bit, but it didn't work out. They split up. And this is actually like a piece of the puzzle of my life that I just kind of understood recently. But there's this show called Narcos Mexico. And my sister was watching the show with my mom and my mom goes, Oh, I used to date that guy. And my sister goes, who the actor or the real person? And she goes, the, Oh, the real guy. Oh and I go, who is he? And then my sister told me 
El Cuero Palma. And then so I Googled that guy and I saw his real name and I'm like, oh my God, Hector. I was like, I knew that guy. It's insane because I, I do know my mom dated a lot of really like rich men and, and very powerful men that were doing very well. And apparently uh, Hector had fallen in love with my mother and was very enamored and wanted to marry my mother and adopt me. But uh, at one point, I guess they went like to a, a Sunday brunch or something. And then Hector picked up my mother, picked up his mother, and then they went to a restaurant. Uh, well, on the way back, they went to drop off his mom first. And from what I hear, her house had been completely shot up, riddled with bullets. And I think that like caused my mom to go, oh, no, this is not good. I don't want any part of this. And so she moved out of Guadalajara and moved north with my grandparents uh, that were in Ensenada, which is about two hours from the border to the United States. And she left me there for a while with them. I didn't know what she was doing. She told me she was looking for work in the U.S. And then eventually she came back and she was like, hey, I saved up some money. I'm going to take you to Disneyland. I was very excited. <laughs> and uh, she came to pick me up. It was actually very late. And there was a strange man. And uh, we got into a, a pickup truck. And back then in the 80s, you didn't even need a seatbelt. You could just ride in the back of a pickup truck. It wasn't even against the law or anything. We'd leave. And I go, Mom, it's late. Disneyland's going to be closed. And she's like, ah, don't worry. Just you know, take a nap. And uh, I do remember falling asleep in the back of the pickup truck. And then I think I was like covered with some blankets. And then next thing I know is I wake up in a strange home in Los Angeles. And my mom's like, hey, this is your new house. And that's your new dad. I'm like, oh, okay. When are we going to go to Disneyland? And she's like, yeah, some other time. It didn't work out. But uh, that's how I started my journey here in the United States. What was your new dad like? Well, I, I hadn't yet become an American at that point. It was just like I was brought undocumented. And what I was told was that he was going to adopt me. And one day they, they got married, my mother and my stepfather at that time. And he got my mom pregnant. And my sister was not even a year old when he passed away. So he was supposed to adopt me. But um, they, they just, the papers never, you know, he never got to it before that happened. And he passed away of an asthma attack. He had really bad asthma. He had a home behind his aunt's home. And we lived back there. And she came running to the front door and said, oh, my God, Junior, I found Junior. He's dead. And, and as a small child, I remember going to the back of her house where he had got an asthma attack as he was arriving home and tried to make it up her back steps on her back porch. And he literally just passed out on the steps. He fell backwards and he was still like in that same possession. Uh -huh. Like he was leaned over on the, on the stairs trying to crawl up them. Once you started going to school in California, how did the language barrier and all that instability at home affect you as a as a school kid? Well, I mean, it contributed a lot to me getting bullied and stuff like that as well. So I would watch TV and, and, you know, learn certain things, but like some things like slang, you know, things of that nature, you can kind of only pick up in the street when you're, you know, as time goes by. Mm. And I remember actually there was a bully and he was like beating up a kid or something. And I tried to like intervene, you know, and I, I remember saying to the bully, like, Oh, Hey, you're nuts. And, 
the bully looked at me like, Who, who's this dork? You know, he's like, hey, I'm going to make you suck my nuts. He said something like that to me. And I was like, oh, well, I don't even know what's going on right now. And the next thing I remember, it's like, it could be my imagination. But the way I recall it, he was like picking me up over his head. And then he threw me and he was just jumping on my back until like the teacher came and got him off me. And so I made friends with other kids that didn't speak good English. And, but it, it was always like very hard for me to fit in with the, the main crowd. You said that obviously being bullied would maybe spark an interest in fighting. Did watching Kung Fu movies and action movies on TV spark that as well? How did all that come together in creating an interest in fighting in you? Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, I watched all the classics as a kid. Arnold Schwarzenegger, Sylvester Stallone, Chuck Norris. I played with a lot of action figures, of course, doing that kind of stuff. But I wasn't really athletic. I, um, I don't know when it actually clicked. It was more like uh, in junior high, I remember I was outside and I was like just doing a little bit of WWE wrestling with some kids, you know, from the neighborhood. And I think one of the older kids kind of saw me and he was just kind of like, He's like, you know what? He's like, when you go to high school, he's like, you should try out for the wrestling team. And at that point, I didn't even know it was an actual sport. I didn't know wrestling was like an actual thing you could do in high school sports. And um, I got into it. Honestly, I sucked pretty bad in high school. Like I still didn't know what it took to win. You know, I was a mama's boy. I didn't really have like a father around the house to show me how to play sports or do stuff like that. I was very artistic. So I was kind of like on the other spectrum, you know. I did, you know, wrestle for a couple seasons in high school before I got kicked out of high school for fighting, of course. I didn't know what it took to win. It was much later on in life that, like, things sparked and I became, like, a very physical person, you know. But even then, I never had a big natural talent for sports. It was more like when, when I finally did get into it, it was more like dedication. Every single day being the suckiest person there, never giving up. And then keep coming back, keep coming back until eventually I was like beating professional fighters. And somebody was like, oh, my God, would you be interested in, in fighting? And I was super excited when I finally heard that. You know, with a lot of wrestling we see on TV, it's somewhat choreographed, to say the least. And it's, it's almost like a kind of really colorful form of dancing between two men. The kind of wrestling you're talking about, though, is it genuinely competitive, genuinely sort of like you don't know what's going to happen at any given moment? Yes, very much so. It's like collegiate wrestling. There's a couple different styles here in the U.S. There's like folk style, Greco-Roman, and just freestyle wrestling, which are like three slightly different rule sets. But it's where you have the, the singlet. And we have it here as a sport in high school and in college, you know, and if you're good enough, you can go to college, you know, get a scholarship and, and pay for your whole college career just by wrestling for the team, you know. So it's definitely like not orchestrated not anything fancy it's just like it's really like the core of of jujitsu too and grappling so that that did come in handy for me in the future whatever i did learn in high school how did this interest in wrestling and fighting morph into an interest in mixed martial arts well i mean it definitely started like we said uh watching movies as a kid and just really being enamored with the action stars and, and thinking that's what a man's man does, you know, cause I'm always trying to live up to that persona too, because, you know, I don't have a, a father figure at the house. So I'm trying to like, just emulate what I see on TV. I did the wrestling, but then I ended up getting kicked out of high school because of like some politics stuff that I got with some kids. And I did actually get into a fight with another kid on the wrestling team. And the problem is that that spiraled me down into like, 
drug use and crime because once I started getting in trouble in high school, then it would become like a perpetual chain of like using drugs, getting kicked out. And then eventually I got kicked out of my home and I needed to support myself. And at that time I was still an undocumented citizen, so I couldn't get a job. So that led to actual crime. And then I was like in and out of jail. So all that time I was growing up, I was really not considering MMA as a career or anything even close to that. It wasn't until I got arrested and I actually served a little bit of time um, that I actually got deported for a little bit back to Mexico. And I had applied for a green card. Um, Back then they had a lottery system. So once you sign up for the lottery, it could take years to actually get it. And if you are um, convicted of something, you're supposed to be subtracted from the lottery. So I shouldn't even have been eligible. So by some stroke of luck, I was in Mexico after I got deported for some criminal stuff. And I get this notice from my mom and she's like, I don't know how, but your green card came in the mail. And so I came back and I came back with the intention that I was like going to fix my life. Because up until that point, there was no way for me to really earn a living. So I was like doing the worst decisions any child can make at that age, you know, because when you're trying to just survive. Once I got the green card, I came back and I was like, that's it. Boom. I'm going to get my life straight. I'm going to get a job. I'm going to go back to to finish high school and and get into college. Uh, And I did all that, you know, and um, I got a job at a motorcycle shop. And it was the first thing as an adult that really inspired me and gave me something to strive for. And I was like spending all my money on racing motorcycles And then I was settling down with my wife at the time. And she said, why don't you go back to doing something less expensive? You know, but you can still get some thrills. Like, remember, you wrestled in high school. Right around that same time, I had also seen a documentary called Mark Kerr, The Smashing Machine. And it depicted a lifestyle that was not very positive. um, But still, I found it very intriguing. This guy was fighting all the way in Japan. He would get flown over there and he was the who's who of fighters back then. And I was just like, I don't know what this is, but I want to try it. And I found a jam and it happened to be right across the street from the place where I had just gone back to community college. And within three months of signing up, I just knew that's what I wanted to do. And I dropped out of college. I changed all my focus from my daily job to as getting as much training as I can get. And within a couple of years, you know, people noticed and were asking me to fight professionally. Mixed martial arts is something that's very enjoyable to watch. It's a bit of a guilty pleasure, actually, in some ways, because you sort of always, you know, as an observer, you, it's, it's thrilling, but you sort of feel for what's going on in, in, the, in the ring there. It's normally described as a combat sport that incorporates boxing, wrestling, jiu-jitsu, other things. How, how, do you, how would you describe it? Well, the way I describe it is uh, it's like a form of human chess. I did have some Russian friends growing up and I learned to play chess at a very early age and I love it. And I think it's very similar. It's like, you have to think steps ahead, you know, and the best mixed martial artists are the guys that can multitask and switch from one art to the other. You know, if you're grappling and you're distracting somebody with some, some punches and then you go switch to a shot and then you take them down and then you're on top and then you go back to ground and pound, the more gears you could switch, the better you're going to be at the sport. 
you know, some people only have one gear. They can't be switching for between different mentalities. And those are the people that are going to be better maybe as just a boxer. You know, if you have really good hands, but you, you can't kick or you can't wrestle, then you're probably better off in one sport. But when you get these individuals that are really good at almost everything, you know, or, or just really good at one thing and then decent at the others, they could really make a living in the sport. And um, the sport to me is like, it's not violence. It could seem very violent and very bloody. But to me, it's like when it's a sport and it's two gentlemen agreement or gentle women, you know, now we have women in the sport and I love watching them. So I'm very passionate about that side of the sport as well. Any person that you're having an agreement you know, to fight under these rules. And I think that's very civilized, you know, and it's a competition to make some money, of course, you know, but mostly I think people get into it because it really nurtures that competitive nature in humans. And I think that when you push yourself to those limits, you find some of the most beautiful attributes in humanity that has made us the survivors that we are. Given that you're using hands and arms and feet and legs all together, I, I can imagine why you'd have a broad strategic approach, but it, so much of it would have to be like on instinct, just moving without thinking, wouldn't it? Well, you do develop muscle memory. The longer you do it, you do have these patterns that come very simple to you, but some people are just naturals at it. And that's amazing when you see an athlete, some kid come into the gym and you're just like, whoa, they're doing everything right. But yeah, I do believe you do have to have a little bit of some killer instincts, just natural ones to, to be at the top of the food chain when it comes to fighting. And everybody's different. Like I'm very relaxed in there. I have a friend who used to fight in the UFC and he couldn't sleep for weeks before a fight. And I mean, it would blow my mind because I wouldn't want to do it if I was that scared, but I still gave him all the props in the world because no matter how scared he was, he would still get in there, you know, and he would win some and he would lose some. I just happened to be, I don't know if it was because of the way I grew up and all the stuff that I used to get into, but I can literally fall asleep backstage, like right before a fight, you know? And so I'm very talented or blessed that way. You can have a nap before you get into the ring. Oh yeah, for sure. And at one point I didn't even warm up for fights anymore. I would just lay down and be like, tell me when it's my turn. And they'd be like, you're next. And I would just get up and walk right into the cage. What's the most nerve wracking thing for most performers before the bout? Is it the, the prospect of getting pummeled and doing the fighting or is it the public performance in front of, you know, God and a million people and everyone? I would say that hands down, people are more worried about, you know, losing in front of people, embarrassing themselves, um, you know, not performing for their fans and their family and stuff like that. I would say most people are more motivated by that than by the actual fear of losing. Because if you train at a gym where it's like, there's a bunch of high level athletes and you're going to get beat up. Like that's just a part of the game. You need to understand that, you know, you need to be able to take a beating because if you're training correctly, you should be pushed to your limits even if you're the top dog at your gym. Do you have to sort of constantly have a feel for your opponent's center of gravity as you're fighting them? Yes, for sure. Like if if you're, especially if you're going to like try to pick them up and dump them on their head, any kind of takedown, you need to know where the center of gravity is before you, you know, you waste your effort. Every bit of effort used has to be used correctly so you don't tire yourself out. You know, footwork is amazing. You need to know where your opponent is at all times and you're trying to place them in the right direction as well. You know, I'm a southpaw. So I throw a big right hand hook. 
So, you know, if I can like start throwing a left and get you to walk into that hook, boom, I got you. It's a hardcore sport for all of that. What kind of injuries have you sustained playing this? Oh my God, everything. I've broken so many bones and I'm just the kind of person that it's like, I broke my leg once and my coach was like, there's no way you broke your leg. He's like, there's no way. He's like, you're being a pussy. Just fucking, you got to walk this shit off. And I walked on it for three days and it just kept getting more and more swollen. And finally, my wife at the time, um, she told me, you got to go to the doctor. And I went and then they were like, yeah, you've been walking on a broken leg for three days. So um, the worst injury I probably have or the longest lasting is I I did have an eye surgery. This is how dangerous this is. It didn't even happen in a fight. It happened in training with full-size sparring gloves and headgear. I was sparring a friend of mine who was in the UFC, very sharp shooter, just very pinpoint accuracy. And he threw an uppercut and I kind of saw, like when I saw it, it was already too late. It it had gone right in between my guard and I could tell it was going right in my eyeball and it did right in the eye. I saw huge white light flash in my eye and I probably couldn't see out of the eye for the next 10, 15 minutes. So after that, I went home and I I noticed I had this little flashlight in the back of the eye and it would happen two or three times a day the first day and then maybe twice as much the next day. And then I knew kind of something was wrong. So I called my eye doctor because you usually have an eye doctor you work with. Once you are a professional fighter, you go on a regular basis to get checkups. So I called him and I said, hey, man, my eye's doing this weird thing. He goes, oh, that doesn't sound good. I said, he said, I think you should come down here. And uh, I was like, yeah, you know what? I'm really busy. How about next week? <laughs> and uh, he's like, ah, that's not a good idea. And, but I, and then within a few days, the light went from several times a day to several times a minute. This is Conversations with Richard Feidler. You can hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. Diego, you were telling me how you had an accident while training, which seemed to have damaged your eye very badly. How badly were these lights flashing in your eyes? So it was just like if you could picture a flickering light inside your eye all day. Like somebody's like just turning on and off a flashlight. So I came in and uh, as soon as he looked in my eye, I could tell something was wrong, but he didn't want to be the guy. To say it, he goes, yeah, he goes, I dude, I think you need a second opinion. He goes, I'm going to refer you to a, a retina specialist. He's going to see you tomorrow. Okay, he's going to get you a fine. I walk into the retina specialist. Right away, I knew it was bad news because everybody there was 70 years old. <laughs> and you just look around and you're like, oh, my God, I'm the only, like, you know, young person in here. And apparently when you get old, your retina's just go bad and you just go blind. Sorry. Like that just happens. So um, I'm waiting to see the doctor. I see the doctor and he looks and right away he goes, all right, I got some bad news. He goes, if you don't have surgery tomorrow, a hundred percent chance you go blind in that eye. A hundred. I was like, not even 99. He's like, no, 
a hundred. I go, oh, I guess we should schedule it. Then he goes, yeah. So what are we so, talking about um, here? A detached retina? Yeah, I can actually explain it real quick. If you don't know how a retina works, it's like the wallpaper on the back of an eye. And that wallpaper transmits the information to your brain. And if that wallpaper starts to detach from the wall at any point, it's not making contact, it doesn't transfer the information and you get a blind spot in that spot. Now, if the whole paper comes off the whole wall, then you're completely blind in that eye. So what they do is they schedule me for the next day. They put a rubber band on your eyeball and the rubber band squeezes your eye in such a way that the pressure makes the wallpaper push back on the back of, of the eye. So it'll reattach just to make sure that the contact alone, you know, is not going to ensure it reheres. So what they do is they put a needle in your eye and they shoot an air bubble and the air bubble is going to cause more pressure inside the eye to keep it up against the back of the eye wall until it reconnects. So wherever your detachment is, you have to tilt your head or lay in a certain way to keep the bubble there for two weeks until the bubble dissipates and they know that the place has been in contact as long as possible. So in my particular case, I couldn't lay down for two weeks. I almost went insane because I couldn't sleep. I had to sleep sitting up and I had to have my head tilted to the right. So that means it would keep the air bubble in the left back corner of my eyeball, if that makes sense. They put you under for this operation, though, didn't they? The no. For that didn't. No. No, I do know. I'm not a scientist or a doctor. I don't know why, but they have to do it under local anesthesia. Oh, my you God. You have to be awake. They oh. can't do it in general. So they gave me a sedative, and they gave me uh, local anesthesia in the eyeball. But at some point, you have to see the needle go inside the eye. Ugh. And the craziest part thing is that I don't remember because I was sedated, but I actually became really good friends with that doctor. And we talked to this day and he says, "I, dude, you wouldn't shut up. He's like, I've been doing the surgery for 12 years. I've never had anybody talk through the entire surgery. <laughs> <laughs> Several times he was just like, can you be quiet, please? Can you, I'm like, have to concentrate on keep asking him questions, apparently. So you go through this long recovery process and tell me, you ha- you'd have to stop fighting during this period. What would you do? How did you make a living while you were recovering from this terrible injury? Well, that was the toughest part of my life, really. I had really grown to love fighting. It gave me finally a purpose, you know, because I kind of had forgotten all about art, you know, growing up. And that was always my purpose. But at this point, I was really lost, and I had dropped out of college to pursue my fight career. So I didn't have any further education. I didn't really have any like skills, you know. Like I, as a young adult, I got so into fighting. It's like pretty much that's all I did. At this point, I had three kids and a family, and I didn't know how to support my 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 family like I had been doing with fighting and all that stuff. So I looked around. The doctor said, first of all, you can't do any contact sports for two two years. He goes, that's out of the question. He goes, I want your eye to heal completely before you go back to doing any contact sports. And at that time, I was really not ready to quit, but I thought it was the right decision to make for my family. So I gave it up. I was researching jobs that didn't really require an education. And for some reason, I found on top of the list process server. 
And right around that time, this movie, um, Pineapple Express, had come out and I had seen it. I go, well, that seems fun. So I, I got into serving papers. And, so this and is a thing that doesn't really happen in Australia, but it happens. We see it in American movies all the time. You became the guy who just bails up to someone and says, hey, Diego. And you go, yes. And you go, you've been served and you hand him an envelope. That's what you were doing? Basically, yes. So in the United States, if you have to go to court for a civil thing, like between two individuals, let's say family, or you're getting sued for something that's called civil court. So when you go to civil court, um, you have to get served papers. It's the only way here in the United States that if you don't show up, the court knows for a fact that you were notified. Let's say you're unfortunately going to get a divorce and somebody wants me to serve you papers, right? Your, your spouse says, hey, I'm no longer digging Richard, boom, we're done. Uh, please go serve him. They pay me the money as a process server. And since she's your spouse, she probably has pictures of you and, and you know other information like where I can find you at certain times. So if I show up to your office and you, you're in there and I walk in, I go, hey, Richard, how you doing? You go, I'm not Richard. And now I've seen a picture of you. I could still be like, you've been served. Throw the papers down. You don't have to touch them. But in court, if you don't show up, I will go to court and be like, hey, I serve Richard. He chose not to go. That's on him. And usually they're going to get take my word over your word because I'm an officer of the court. And unless you can prove otherwise, that's it. You know, you got served. It sounds exciting, but is it is it exciting or is that or does it wear you down after a while doing that? It did wear me down at first because I, I couldn't fight anymore. I tend to put 100% into everything, 1,000%. So I became one of the best process servers in this part of San Diego. And they would send me to LA as well to serve papers. And I just, they would send me on all these missions that were like almost impossible. I would track people down. I would do stakeouts where I would wait outside their homes. I would get celebrity papers. Uh, I served um, Mick Fleetwood from Fleetwood Mac on stage once, ruined the concert completely. (laughs) In the middle of the show? Yeah, so it was uh, the Mick Fleetwood experience. Uh, so it's his side project. He's a drummer, so he's in the back. They called me very last minute. The show started at 7. They called me like at 5.36. They're like, hey, we got you two tickets to uh, see Mick, and we'd like you to serve him. And usually something of that nature, something of that nature, you give me more more time to come up with a better plan. But that short notice, I drove straight there. I got to the front of the line. As soon as they opened the doors, I went to the front of the stage. I was right there. There's like a divider. There's a space. And then the stage is like eye level to me, correct? So there's an opening band. Boom, they play. Mick Fleetwood experience comes out. They're jamming for like 30, 40 minutes. Um, They stop and he starts walking towards the front of the stage. I look around. Everybody there's like 60, 70 years old. I told the crowd, I'm like, holy shit, you know, maybe it's, maybe it's done and we're going to go home. You know, I go, this is probably my big chance. So as he walks to the front of the stage, I jump over the divider 
And I yell, Mick, Mick, Mick. He looks down and I throw the papers on his feet. <laughs> and I go, you've been served. Like that. And right as, that, as I did that, the, the security guards all jump on me and they start beating my ass because they don't know what I just said. I could have just thrown anthrax on him. They don't know oh. what the hell's going on. And me being a fighter, I just start swinging. I'm like fighting three or four dudes. It looks like a cartoon where like, you know, the, the dust cloud with the arms just coming out of it. And I, what effect did this I have mean, on Mick? Was there on stage, probably having a lovely time playing with his band? How, how, how did it affect him getting <laughs> getting served oh, like that? <laughs> it was the show was ruined. So finally, they dragged me backstage, and they're like, "What are you doing?" I go, "I was serving Mick," and I pulled out this little badge I had. And then the manager comes out. And he's like, "What is this? What's going on here?" I go, "Hey, man, I, he has you know, he has, They want him to testify in court. What do you want me to do? He's not even getting sued." And he goes, well, Mick's back there crying. He's, he's, he's crying, man. He says, he says, you shot all the energy. He's, he's not coming back out. I go, oh, man, I'm sorry. <laughs> I thought it was the end of the show. You know, like, it was an intermission. What did I know? And so, like, you know, the, they announce it, and I can hear everybody booing. And they're just like, sorry, folks, there's been an emergency, and Mick's not coming back out. Boo! And I'm just like, Jesus, please let me out the back door before they murder me. <laughs> right. So you harshed Mick Fleetwood's mellow in front of a bunch of yeah. 60, 70 something Fleetwood Mac fans. Boy, yeah. that's, that's pretty dangerous thing to vibe. do. You harshed the vibe yeah, I harshed totally. It. I, harshed it. I harshed the vibe pretty hard. <laughs> so <laughs> so you, it sounds like you were very good at it. But what, what gave you yeah. the push to finally quit being a process server, Diego? Uh, well, I went on to do it for like six years and only after like the first couple years, I was already very burnt out on it. It's just because at the end of the day, it is a cat and mouse game, but it's really delivering bad news for a living. So then I, I, I started to realize like, I'm not happy with my life. Plus I had to work a lot of hours at that point um, with, you know, the we're in the process of getting a divorce, but you know, we had bought a house, we made a life. I was, I, I actually banged that as one of the reasons why I ended up getting so much emotional distance between my wife because I was working. It's, you know, when you're a man that needs to put food on the table and it takes 50 or 60 hours to do that, you become really detached from your family. And so that was one of the things I really hated about that job. It actually required a lot of time for me to, to make a decent living. Basically, I went to watch one of my friends compete in a jiu-jitsu tournament. And on this day, I said, you know what? I think I'm going to partake in some mushrooms and have a, a very pleasant experience watching my friends compete. And halfway through the competition, I realized, oh, wow, I'm supposed to be serving a paper today. It's a very important paper. And I'm like, oh, my God, like this is terrible. And so I went and they weren't home and I was knocking on the door. And I, I was waiting for them outside, and I really realized, oh, my God, I hate my job. Like, I really do. Like, that's what it is. Like, that's what's really, like, I was clinically depressed. I would pull up to my job. I would, like, cry outside in the car and stuff. I would try to quit all the time. I would come in and just, like, throw a little fit. But they would always, like, bribe me with more benefits or give me a raise or, or a promotion or more fringe benefits, you know? So, like, this day, I was just, like, on mushrooms, and it really dawned on me, oh, this job. Like, I'm not going to be happy until I get out of this job. And at that time, I had about maybe two months worth of, uh, of living expenses. So, I said, okay, this is it. This is going to be the last paper I ever served. And Monday morning, I'm going to show up. 
I walk right into my boss's office. I like knock some stuff just to make sure the point is clear off his <laughs> desk. And I'm like, I'm done. I'm done. And then he got the point and he looked at me and was like, no, no, let him go this time. <laughs> they, they were just like, yeah, I know this time he's good. Let him go. And so nobody tried to talk me off the ledge. I just went home and I looked at my finances and I said, I have about two months worth of expenses. I better figure out what I want to do with the rest of my life. And at the same time, I had a little bag of mushrooms and I was like, you know what? I think I'm just going to do mushrooms for the next 30 days. 30 and days? Even, yeah. And I had recently seen somebody on Instagram do a 30-day push-up challenge. And I said, well, what if I push myself to do mushrooms for 30 days? <laughs> so at that point, I didn't even have a, a lot of Instagram followers. I had like maybe 2,000. I kicked everybody I didn't know off my Instagram. I narrowed it down to like 600 people. <laughs> And then I started doing mushrooms every day and I would record it and post a video every day of me doing mushroom. And I had the time of my life. It was some days it was trying like, Oh my God, here we go again. Like, you know, it, it really became difficult. And actually when I was younger, I had always heard like, Oh, if you use psychedelics two days in a row, you build a tolerance and you need to take twice as much. I was like hallucinating at the end of the 30 days from the same amount as when I started. Aren't you at risk of completely losing all sense of perspective when you're doing hallucinogenics for that long? Were you worried you might not be able to come back to your your conscious non-mushroom brain at the end of all this experience, Diego? Well, at the end of the day, I was already feeling pretty back to normal. So it would be like a cycle. I would wake up, I would be normal, I would take the mushrooms, I would have a crazy day, and then towards the end of the day, I would feel normal. So I, I didn't feel... Like it was dangerous to continue going, and I wasn't really having any negative experiences. The hallucinations like, change as the days went by. Yeah, um, some people consider microdosing uh, a quarter gram to half a gram, and I was taking a full gram of mushrooms. But even though some people think you build a tolerance to it, but what I was saying is like, no. By the end of the thirty days, it almost seemed to be accumulating, and I was having more of an effect. In the last few days. I did seem to be having some visual hallucinations. So I really wouldn't have visual hallucinations on a regular basis. It was more towards the end, but really it was just like, I felt it was really opening my mind. And on the last day I said, well, this day I'm going to do, it's the last day of the 30 day mushroom challenge. I'm going to do a heroic dose, which is considered five grams. And I locked myself in the bedroom and at this point, it, I still hadn't like had the realization that I wanted to be an artist or anything. It was that day that it happened. That day, there happened to be some art supplies here in the room, and I started painting, and I realized like it just came out of nowhere. Oh my God, I was going to be an artist my entire life. What happened? You know, like I, it's like, you know, when you see a train in the movies, and then there's a lever, and you pull a lever, and the tracks take you a different way? I just felt like somebody pulled the lever. And I was going the wrong way this whole time. I mean, I, I love fighting. I love everything I did. But I had gotten so off course to what I originally wanted to do. And in this moment, like a light bulb came on and it was like everything made sense to me. So where did that lead you to next once you'd had that realization? Uh, well, like I went out, I maxed all my cards out. I bought all these art supplies. I started painting. I hadn't really been creative in that kind of way, you know, with visual art in years. And I just started feeling and, and painting by, by feelings alone, you know, with no formal training.
one of my coaches, who's a very well-known uh, Eric Del Fiero, he's coached um, very many UFC fighters. And he saw me through this progression and said, hey, man, I just took a class on emotional intelligence. I think you would really dig it right now if you took it. I trusted him. I didn't ask him too many questions like, hey, what's this about? How's this work? Boop, 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 nothing. I just said, you want me to take it, coach? I'll take it. Boom, signed up. Love the course. So during this class, you know, you become more vulnerable and you're expressing yourself more. And I think I've always been pretty good at that, you know, because even growing up, like when people would make fun of me, I would just decide to still be myself. I always made that choice. I never really tried to change who I was for anybody. And there's a portion where they encourage you to set some goals for a hundred day period. And they have a like personal coach that helps you with those goals. And a lot of people are like real estate agents and they go, I want to sell a few more houses. They go, (laughs) well, do something creative that's outside of your comfort zone. And since I was already painting for a living, they said, what could you do creative that's different than whatever else you do? And I have no idea to this day. I had no real history in it. When I was a little kid, my mom would sometimes dress me up. You know, I had cousins and they would like dress me up as a girl and I would perform a little bit. And so I don't know where it came from. But I go, what if I do a drag show? And everybody freaked out because everybody that had just met me in that class, I had just finished a fight. My face was destroyed. I still had like a a hand in a cast that was broken and my fist was broken in several pieces from a fight. And so everybody met me as this fighter who I had just done one of these most gnarliest, bloodiest fights. So you were doing bare knuckle boxing when you were doing the emotional intelligence course at the same time. And that's when you decided you wanted to try drag. Well, yes. It's funny because I had been retired for so many years, but they've only legalized bare knuckle boxing, which is something I had always been interested in as a child and just watching it in the movies, you know, or the travelers. And, uh, you know, I, I grew up watching some of the documentaries of those guys boxing and stuff. And it's just something that really called my eye. Because even though I started as mostly a grappling and jujitsu guy, Eventually, I did become quite a brawler in MMA, you know, not a technical boxing kind of guy, but an actual brawler that was putting pressure on people and making people wilt, even if they were a better technical striker than me. So there you were sitting in that emotional intelligence course, beaten up, bruised and battered, and you decide you want to make yourself beautiful in a really different way to any way you might have been beautiful before. Exactly. And when I saw the reaction, I said, oh, my God, this is the right step to move the right place to go because art should always be about pushing your boundaries and other people's boundaries to making them think about stuff. You know, I refer to it a lot as a lot of people make Ikea art and that's okay. And if something simple, little flowers make you happy, if an Ikea painting makes you happy, or if you make an Ikea painting makes you happy, that's a hundred percent fine. I've always considered myself an artist. I try to do things that push people's limits. So when I realized these people perceive me as an ultra masculine man, you know, the epitome of a man, somebody who's like doing bare knuckle boxing has the bloodiest matches to go and then dress in drag <laughs> and take it deadly serious. You know, I got my full body waxed. I got my ears pierced because I didn't want to like be strutting my stuff and have a clip on fall off. You know, I got my <laughs> nails done. I mean, I, I, you know, I took classes in, 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 in heels and my friend who's uh, now my girlfriend, Jacqueline is um, I met her in the class and then she was a, a stylist 
And she was volunteered to show me like, hey, look, this is where you can get clothes and what we can do to get some fittings for your outfits and stuff like that. And I learned so much about fashion. And that was just one small part. And then I realized like, even though like I'm not super familiar, I didn't watch a lot of uh, RuPaul's Drag Race or anything. It's like innately, I know what I want. When I hear a song that I want to perform, it's like I can picture what style dress I want. So who is Lola Pistola, your drag persona? Who is Lola when she's on stage? Lola is just a firecracker waiting to explode. You know, like when, when, when the makeup comes on, I look in the mirror and it's just, I'm a completely different person. I feel transformed and I cannot stop smiling. Like when my makeup is done, I can't stop smiling. And then you get me in the clothes and it's like supernatural. Like, my mannerisms turn more feminine and I'm like super sassy and I'm having a really good time. And I love really like songs that like pop, you know, and you have a real good rhythm. And I I love, I love going out there and just performing and, you know, enjoying myself. Are you at home in the drag community as a straight guy from a bare knuckle boxing background? I got a ridiculous good welcome. Um, The first time I did drag, I didn't realize I was actually signing up for a competition And it's funny because it reminded me of the early days of fighting. Because when you start fighting, you usually start at smaller venues. And sometimes there's not a lot of room to warm up. And sometimes you're warming up right next to the guy you're going to fight. And this particular place, it happened to be a contest that I signed up for. And it was like a broom closet. There's like six people getting ready in this broom closet. And they were all (laughs) super welcoming. They were all willing to help me however I needed help. They could tell it was my first time. But I went out there and I performed. I did the best I could. And at the end of the day, the manager was like, you're welcome to come back and perform anytime. The crowd was great for you. And um, there was a prize. I got second place. And the person that got first place even came and gave me some of the money, the winnings. And they were like, oh, sugar, you take this. They're like, you won. They're like, you won. They, they, they picked me because I, I come here all the time. But, and I, I, I thought that was like very touching and moving. And I felt was very at home. And, and it, since then, it's very rare, I mean, that I've heard anything negative about what I do. But then again, you know, who wants to tell me anything negative? I like- <laughs> <laughs> Indeed, that's right. Uh, and, you know, just going back a bit, when I asked you that question, so it was there after you'd come blackened and bruised after a bare-knuckle boxing bout, uh, sitting in your emotional intelligence class, that you decided to take on a drag persona. I, I realised as I said that, Diego, I've never asked that of a guest before, and I don't expect I'll ask that question ever again <laughs> as a guest. You've had an amazing life, the twists and turns of it. Do you see any overall sort of connecting thought between your various lifestyles or jobs or opportunities? Do you see yourself as different personas or the one person just pursuing branches off the same tree, if you like, or different byways off the same road? Well, definitely Lola is a character. And it's, you know, like I put her on and I kind of like channel her when it's time to do Lola. But at the end of the day, I'm just one person. I wouldn't say I have multiple personalities or anything like that. And it's never been like a fetish for me to dress like that. It's more of a performance art. And at the end of the day, I'm just an artist. Like that's, that's what it all comes down to, you know? And luckily I've gotten some attention from Hollywood now. And, you know, I'm working on writing a script based on uh, the story of my life. And I think that's probably going to be a a very promising future for me as a script writer, because at the end of the day, out of all the talents I have, I think I've always been a, a good storyteller. 
And as soon as I learn how to translate that into, you know, screenwriting, I think I'll, I'll have a very promising future in that venue. But at the end of the day, whatever I do, I do it as an artist. Diego, they do make a movie for your life. I am so there to watch that film. It's been such a joy speaking with you. And thank you for taking us on the wild ride of the journey through your life, Diego. Thank you so much. Well, it's been my pleasure, Richard. been listening to a podcast of conversations with richard feidler for more conversations interviews please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations 